Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1928, the 32nd season of the VFL. 1928 was an Olympic year. Athletes from around the world went off to Amsterdam. Australia sent a team of 19 athletes, winning one gold, two silver, and one bronze medal. The Olympics and the AFL slash VFL are almost the same age. Olympics began in 1896 and the VFL in 1897. But only one of these organisations has achieved a global presence. An icon that we are all familiar with began in 1928. The Speedos Bathers made their debut. Not the budgie smugglers many footballers wear in their post-game dips in the ocean, but the still controversial racerback swimsuit for men that had no sleeves, giving more freedom of movement and faster swimming speeds. But such a daring, figure-hugging costume created outrage and there were bans on some beaches. But perhaps the most memorable domestic development from 1928 was sliced bread. First sold by the Chillicothe Baking Company in Missouri, USA. So, the best thing since sliced bread really means the best thing since 1928. There were several aviation milestones grabbing the public's attention. In February, Bert Hinkler landed in Darwin after the first solo flight from the UK. It took 15 days. Qantas can now do the trip in about 17 hours. In June, Charles Kingsford Smith and his crew landed in Brisbane after the first ever flight across the Pacific. And December saw Hubert Wilkins make the first flight over the Antarctic. But it would still be some decades before a VFL team got onto a plane. On the local front, the federal government, led by Prime Minister Stanley Bruce, looked to cut spending and wages to reduce the deficit. And across the country, there was an increase in strikes and industrial action. The changes, innovations and growth in prosperity seen across the 1920s was not quite finished, but storm clouds were gathering. And as we approach the end of the 1920s, it is worth noting how the city has grown in this decade. The Melbourne History website describes the expansion of the city as, quote, The preferences of homeseekers for the east, southeast and bayside continued to shape the direction of the city's expansion. The suburban frontier was pushed out to places such as Box Hill, Heidelberg, Sandringham and Mordialloc, which were linked to the city by public transport routes. As these new suburbs developed, there remained large areas of unoccupied land closer to the city, which were beyond walking distance to train stations and tram stops. End quote. February saw the laying of the foundation stone for the new member stand at the MCG, although construction had commenced in December. The stand would last until the 2003 Grand Final, before being replaced as part of developments for the 2006 Commonwealth Games. 1928 also saw a potential move for the VFA to affiliate themselves with the VFL. It was clear the VFA was struggling, and the challenge of players going from the VFA to the VFL without clearances, was a drain on the clubs. But despite many meetings and proposals, nothing came of it. The VFA would live on for many decades, and the relationship between the two organisations did not improve. If you want the details of what was proposed, and what might have happened, I have recorded a special supplementary episode, which will be available shortly. One for those interested in the dynamics between the VFA and the VFL. So back to the 1928 season. After a couple of years of relative stability, it was another year of turnover for coaches, with eight of the 12 clubs making changes. At Carlton, Ray Brew took over from Horry Clover as captain coach again, after recovering from a burst appendix that kept him out of the 1927 season. At Essendon, non-playing coach Charlie Hardy, a member of the Mosquito Fleet in the premierships of 1923 and 24, replaced Frank Maher. Over at Fitzroy, it was Gordon Rattray, who had captained the club in their 1923 grand final before becoming a non-playing coach at Melbourne, who returned as non-playing coach, replacing Vic Belcher. Down at Geelong, Cliff Rankin had retired, and the new captain coach was Tom Fitzmorris. At Hawthorne, Dan Minogue's time was up, and Bert Sutton transferred from South Melbourne to become captain coach. At Melbourne, the former premiership captain coach, Albert Chadwick, stood down and played one more season 
just as a player. And Brownlow medalist Ivor Warren Smith became their captain coach. Over at North Melbourne, Sid Barker finally hung up his boots after a one-season comeback as playing coach. And former Collingwood grand final captain Charlie Tyson, in his second year at North, took over as playing coach. The final change of coach was at St Kilda, where George Hines, one season as coach, was done. And in his place, George Sparrow would return for his third stint as coach of the Saints. A man who had the honour of getting St Kilda into their first grand final in 1913, when they were runners-up to Fitzroy. Coaches generally had shorter careers in this era, with the notable exception of Collingwood's Chuck McHale, but eight new coaches out of 12 competing teams, equivalent to 67% of the clubs, was the second highest turnover of the VFL's history. The biggest year for turnover of coaches was 1925, when nine new appointments out of 12 clubs meant 75% of the competing sides had a new coach that year. The season would start with some famous players missing, including Roy up there Kazali, who had left South for the very last time. He was off to Launceston, where his playing career would extend with various Tasmania teams up to 1936, and he would even play a couple more games with Camberwell in the VFA in 1941, when he was aged 48. We will see Roy Kazali again in 1942, where he will coach Hawthorne. The previews of the season were again optimistic for a successful competition. Collingwood, the reigning premiers, were considered to have improved their standing and would field a stronger 18. Coach Jock McHale said, The recruits offering are the best I've ever seen at Collingwood. Given how little McHale ever said, this was considered a significant statement. Carlton and Richmond were both considered premiership potential by follower in the age. There was also a new definition of holding the ball, where a player had to be held firmly enough to stop him or retard his progress. When held, a player must immediately punch, kick or get rid of the ball, otherwise it would be a free kick. Spoiler alert, this is not going to be the end of disputes about holding the ball, holding the man. In other developments of the rules, free kicks could be cancelled by the umpire calling play on if giving the free would penalise the team. We see this now with the advantage rule. And there was also an update in the process of reporting players. Umpires were issued with cards and any reports were to be detailed in triplicate with copies going to the clubs and to the league office by 4pm Tuesday afternoon. They had more confidence in the mail in those days getting through on time. The season opened on a sunny April 21, the earliest opening to the VFL season so far, with 128,000 people making their way to the six games. In another break with tradition, Collingwood had to play away at Geelong, despite being the reigning premiers. They would have to wait until round two to unfurl their premiership flag. The match at Geelong was tipped to be the game of the round, given that Geelong had finished in the top four in the previous season, and it did not disappoint. After a slow start, the Magpies led by just four points at three-quarter time, and they managed to be just one goal in front when the final bell rang. But that wasn't the closest game of the day. Hawthorne gave their supporters hope for a better year, but also disappointment when they lost by just three points to St Kilda. Footscray kicked five goals in the last quarter against a fading South Melbourne, but the Lakesiders held on by one point to win their opening game at home. The other narrow result was a two-goal win to Melbourne over Essendon after the scores had been close all day. In the other games, Richmond had an easy win over North, as Carlton had against Fitzroy. In his review of the opening round, Old Boy in the Argus continued the campaign for the need to allow substitutes for injured players, pointing out some of the incidents in the round. For example, Fitzroy's Lou Bowles had his wrist broken and returned to the ground after having the bones set, wearing a splint. At Punt Road, North Melbourne's captain, Charlie Tyson, collapsed at quarter time, having strained the muscles in his back. He returned to the ground after half-time, useless other than providing leadership and inspiration. The Tigers also lost Percy Bentley with a torn thigh muscle. He stayed on the ground, unable to contribute, 
and potentially further damaging his leg. It would still take several seasons for the substitute rule to change and the 19th man to appear, but the message from the supporters and the press was becoming louder. In the first week of the season, a number of players met to form a players' council, or to reinstate the organisation that had previously existed in 1913, but fallen away and not been reformed after the war. The broad aims were to care for players who had been injured or were sick, a right of appeal if a player's clearance was refused, and to be able to provide input on the rules of the game. While the Players' Association is an accepted part of the modern game, with a key role in representing players in the financial division of income from the league, the 1928 version, however, made it clear they would not be involved in any financial arrangements between a player and the clubs. The first third of the season was completed by the end of May. The latter, after six games, saw Melbourne on top, undefeated, even though most of their games had been decided by less than two goals. Collingwood was second, having only lost one game against bitter rivals Richmond. The Magpies had a much better percentage than Melbourne. Carlton and Essendon made their way into the top four, with Geelong, Richmond, Footscray and North Melbourne all again behind Essendon on three wins. In what looked like it might be an even season, Fitzroy and Hawthorne were yet to get a victory, with Hawthorne in a sadly familiar 12th spot. Fitzroy might have got their first win for the season if they had a kick straight in their round six game against Geelong. The Maroons' score of two goals, 27 behinds, 39 points, meant they lost to Geelong, who had 19 goals and eight behinds for 122 points. Geelong had 26 scoring shots. Fitzroy had 29 scoring opportunities, but the margin was still 76 points. That must have been a long train ride back from Geelong for the Fitzroy players and supporters, especially as they recalled the five times they hit the post, and the fact that their second goal only came during time on in the last quarter. And just to show how football is a funny game, about a month later, the Maroons had a day out against North, and Jack Moriarty kicked 12 goals on his own. But that didn't help in the horror game against Geelong. While Geelong were looking to break their way back into the top four, they were also reeling from the shock of the fire that destroyed the Brownlow Young Memorial Grandstand. It was just three years old and dedicated to the memory of Charles Brownlow and former skipper Henry Tracker Young. The cause of the fire was not known, but, as reported in the Herald, with the floors saturated in training oil and the building made of wood, it burned uncontrollably. Along with the loss of precious photos and memorabilia, players also lost some of their playing kit and had to go out and purchase new boots. The club was playing Richmond at Punt Road in the next game, losing by three points. They hosted Hawthorne the following week, with reserved seat holders giving allocated space in the members' stand and teams having to share hot showers, amongst other special arrangements. The stand had been partially financed by an innovative scheme where supporters could pay upfront for five years of reserve seats. In the aftermath of the fire, many of these supporters contacted the club to pay an additional five years to help finance a replacement stand. Round 7 and 8 at the start of June created a challenge for the VFL players. Round 7 was on Saturday, the 2nd of June, and Round 8 was on the King's birthday holiday, Monday the 4th of June. Two games in three days for all of the players. Twelve games in three days for the supporters. There were several comments in the press pointing out how this was unfair in the players, and split rounds of three games on the Saturday and three on the holiday Monday had been the norm for several years. But the VFL wanted to finish the season before October, so the MCG was ready for the upcoming Ashes Tour against England. Old Boy in the Argus suggested that the hot sea baths in St Kilda would be in high demand on Sunday morning as the players prepared for the Monday game. Not sure that would be the recovery regime in the modern era, but nor would players be expected to front up for two games in three days. June also saw the interstate game in Adelaide. In a thrilling finish, the game ended in a draw. Full forward, Gordon Coventry almost took a mark in the last moments, but had the ball knocked away with the bell tolling seconds later. 
Round 12 was held early in July. The season was two-thirds complete, and the fight for the final four was still open. At the top of the table sat Collingwood, ahead on percentage from Melbourne, both on 10 wins. The Premiers of the past two seasons were on track for a showdown at this rate. The runners-up from 1927, Richmond, were third, just one game behind. And then there was a real gap to fourth spot. Carlton, who had seven wins from the 12 games, were ahead on percentage from Essendon, who also had seven wins. Still in touch for that fourth spot were Geelong, who had just beaten Collingwood, after the Magpies were reduced to 15 players because of injuries, and St Kilda, a game behind. The others would be looking to next season. North had just announced that eight players were being dropped from the club. Harsh, given that the transfer window had closed so they could not move to another club. But, apparently, according to club secretary Mr Thomas, all had volunteered to play for North Melbourne's second 18. Meanwhile, plans were afoot to recruit better players for the club. Across town, Hawthorne were on the bottom of the ladder, still without a win. Some modern innovations were not meeting with universal approval, even though we now regard them as fine traditions of the game. At the end of June, five-time Premiership coach Jack Worrell wrote, It may be that the older a man becomes, the more conservative are his ideas. And I must candidly admit that the modern innovation of having tigers, bulldogs and magpies as mascots savours too much of the theatrical business and is abhorrent to those of an older generation who kept this grand Australian game in perpetuity before the Bulldogs were led onto the field. No exception can be taken so far as the magpie is concerned, as the bird is a home product and smacks of the soil and is beloved alike for its song and fighting qualities. But, leading a Bulldog onto the field at three-quarter time, as was done on Footscray, to the wild applause of the callow youth, is not the way to win premierships. And it is a poor class of player who requires the stimulus of a bulldog. Grand old British animal that he may be. I suppose it's all a sign of the times. And, despite Jack Worrell's disgust, the bulldog name has stuck with the team from the western suburbs ever since. There was serious trouble brewing at Collingwood after round 12. The club committee noting the deteriorating economic conditions, had made a unilateral decision to cut player wages from £3 to £2.10 shillings a week, a 16% wage cut. The day the players found out, they lost their game against Geelong, only their second loss for the season. On the following Tuesday, there was a players' meeting. Ern Wilson put forward a motion, seconded by the 19-year-old Albert Collier, that the team should refuse to play for the reduced wages. A strike by Collingwood players, the reigning premiers, when they were on top of the ladder. The mood of the meeting was with Wilson, but their captain, Sid Coventry, told the players that a strike would tarnish what they had achieved and their ambitions for the future. And that stopped the talk of any industrial action. Percy Boyer summed up how Sid Coventry led the group away from such drastic action. He was our captain, and after all was said and done, you have to be sensible about things. The players would play for less money, but they would always follow their captain. Mid-July saw a shock announcement when the inaugural Brownlow medalist and premiership centreman Geelong's Kaji Greaves announced he was leaving Geelong to take up a position at the University of Southern California, where he would be teaching his kicking skills to the American footballers. The opportunity was driven by Andrew Chafee, who was both a member of the board of the university and the son of George Chafee, who had brought his family to Australia in the 1890s to develop irrigation settlements around Mildura. Clearly, Andrew remembered the kicking skills of Australian footballers, and... With his brother Ben Chafee living in Melbourne, a scheme was hatched to find a suitable sportsman to train the university's football team, the Trojans. Chafee and his brother Ben communicated with the leading sports writer, Joe Alexander, of Melbourne's Sun News Pictorial, asking that he seek out a player of fine character who was a great kick, an all-round sports person and a good communicator. 
After a prolonged search, the journalist recommended Geelong's Kaji Greaves, and he achieved spectacular results. Before his arrival, the university's players were kicking the ball 20 to 30 yards. After absorbing the lessons from Greaves, players were kicking twice the distance with increased accuracy, and the University of Southern California won the championship. Kaji Greaves would return to Geelong in 1929, after a Hollywood experience of dining on yachts with movie stars, being chased by the Los Angeles press, and meeting millionaires such as William Wrigley of Wrigley's Chewing Gum. A different life to what he led in Geelong, and a pioneer in leading the way for Australian footballers to be recruited into American football, followed up by players such as Darren Bennett, Ben Graham, Sav Rocker, and others. As the season was approaching its conclusion, an issue that will be familiar to modern supporters was highlighted by Old Boy in the Argus. Were teams that couldn't make the finals tanking? While he didn't use that modern term, the example discussed was Geelong in their game against Essendon. St Kilda were competing with Essendon for a spot in the four, and would have been hoping that the Cats would make every effort to defeat the Dons, but with injuries and illness, the Cats were a depleted side. There was an impression by some that the team did not care if they won or lost. There was also the odd situation that Geelong's second 18 objected to players being taken for the senior team, even if they did perform well on the day. One league delegate was quoted as saying, We cannot afford to have teams slackening off, and something must be done. We have too many teams as it is, and clubs that cannot keep up to the mark should realise they may not be wanted. Tough talk indeed, and an issue that is still with us today. At the delegates' meeting on the following Friday, Geelong denied that they played dead. Essendon supported Geelong and condemned the story, and there was a unanimous vote of confidence in Geelong, which just goes to show there has never ever been a team that's ever tanked in the entire history of the VFL or AFL. Round 17 was the second last of the regular season, and Collingwood were still on top, a game clear of Melbourne, who were a game ahead of Richmond. The battle for fourth was between Essendon, in the important spot, being chased by Carlton and St Kilda, a game behind, and Footscray with faint hopes if they could win their last two games and the other three all lost theirs. The round had its biggest controversy at the Junction Oval, where Melbourne led by five points when the bell rang out to end the game, but St Kilda kicked a goal before the umpire could hear the ringing toll to call time. A protest was lodged, but the rules are clear. The game is not over until the umpire signals time. However, perhaps it was time for a bigger bell at the St Kilda ground. The St Kilda timekeeper called for sirens, such as those used on ships and trains, to be installed at every ground, but it would be decades before such a sensible change occurred. Richmond had thrashed Essendon and took second spot from Melbourne. Essendon's loss tipped them out of the four, with Carlton taking their spot, and that win by St Kilda against Melbourne, after the bell had rung, meant that Carlton, Essendon and St Kilda were all on ten wins. But only one of them could make it into the finals. Round 18 saw the focus on who could make the fourth spot. Richmond and Melbourne would have comfortable wins, meaning they stayed in second and third respectively. Of the contenders for fourth spot, St Kilda had the worst percentage. They needed a big win against Footscray at the Western Oval, but a three-point victory meant their only hope was if both Essendon and Carlton lost their games. Essendon thrashed Hawthorne at Windy Hill, but even that percentage boost would not put them in front of the Blues. Collingwood had to defeat Carlton if the Dons were going to play in September. There was a huge cheer at Windy Hill when the scoreboard updated the Collingwood-Carlton game at half-time, showing that the Blues were only one goal up. Carlton's destiny was in its own hands. A win would mean they were in the finals. But they were playing the latter leader, Collingwood, at Victoria Park. A daunting proposition at any time, especially in the last game before the finals began. But a seven-goal third quarter was enough to get the Blues home 
They were in the finals, taking on Richmond in the first semi-final. Essendon finished fifth, winning the 1928 Bronze Almostus Award for missing out on the finals by percentage. Hawthorne, without a win for the season, won the Wooden Spoon, finishing 12th. Since entering the VFL in 1925, the team from Glenferry Oval had only won 7 out of 71 games, losing 90% of the time. A tough start for their VFL career. But when a team that is safe on top of the ladder loses to a team that must win to make the finals, there are going to be some people who wonder if everything is on the level. Rumours, never proven, swirled around town that two Collingwood players had accepted £50 bribes to play dead. And at some point down the track, the great Sit Coventry, Collingwood's captain, revealed that he had been offered a bribe before the game, but dismissed it immediately. He later joked that he should have taken the money, so poor was his game on that afternoon. On the Wednesday night before the semi-final, the Umpire and Permits Committee met to count the Brownlow medal votes, submitted by the umpires after each game. Ivor Warren-Smith, the captain coach of Melbourne and Cinnamon, became the first player to win the award twice, polling best-on-ground votes in eight games, with the umpires only awarding one vote per game at this point. Karchi Greaves' remarkable Brownlow medal efforts continued this season, He was runner-up for the third time, polling five best-on-grounds, even though he only played 15 of the 18 rounds. Over the last five seasons, since the Brownlow was introduced, he had polled 29 best-on-ground efforts, 10 ahead of his nearest competitor, the 1928 medalist Sid Coventry. Greaves had won the first Brownlow medal in 1924, come second three times and third once. Clearly, champion player. The first semi-final was on Saturday 8th of September. Richmond and Carlton had both won their home games during the regular season. Richmond was pleased that their skipper, Alan Geddes, had a successful return to the team in the last game of the season against Geelong. He had been on the injury list since round 10. Another reason for the Tigers to smile was George Rudolph being cleared by the tribunal on Thursday night. But the Tigers were missing one player. Bert Foster was in his first season and made his way into the team late in the season, playing two games. He was also a member of the Fire Brigade and a regular in the Wednesday Football League representing the brigade. He missed the final game of the season and the semi-final, having given a promise to the brigade team who were in the running for the Premiership. If he had played another game for the Tigers, he would have been classified as a senior player in the midweek competition rules and ineligible to play. The Richmond Selection Committee realised the loyalty to the team he had played with all season and agreed to leave him out of the Richmond team. Hard to imagine a player turning down the opportunity to play finals in the AFL today for their local or employer team, but it was a significant demonstration of loyalty by Bert Foster. Richmond were the favoured team to win according to the Herald's preview and given that they had finished three games ahead of the Blues it was the common opinion unless you came from Carlton. Adding to the Tigers confidence was their history of games against Carlton on the MCG. Four times they had met on the large ground with three wins to Richmond. MCC members would have been excited to use the new member stand for the first time with room for 1,500 in the new pavilion. And every seat and accommodation for spectators was required because it was a record crowd of 66,381. Richmond were a much better team across the four quarters and won the game easily. Three of Carlton's players were injured during the game and unable to contribute, which did not help their cause. But they were not playing as well as they had done the week before. According to some, however, the Tigers were not as good as they could have been. Some Melbourne players were reported to have said, Richmond will have to play a lot better than that to beat us, while we have no fear of Collingwood next Saturday. However, the age was much more positive about Richmond, declaring them 
Premiership favourites after their 53-point win. One player generating plenty of excitement was a young, skinny Jack Titus. He had played a handful of games in 1926 and 27 before establishing himself in the team in 1928. In the last two games of the season and in the first semi-final, the 20-year-old had scored 20 goals, announcing himself to the football public. He will be a regular item in future episodes. The main concern from Richmond was the reporting of Captain Alan Geddes for striking Carlton's Tommy Downs and some injury concerns for a few players, but they had a week off to recover while top-of-the-table Collingwood took on Melbourne in the second semi. The tribunal was severe with Geddes, suspending him for eight weeks, meaning Donald Don would replace him as captain in the next final. While the Magpies had finished on top of the ladder, claiming the important right of challenge, their form in the last two weeks of the season was poor. They had just beaten North Melbourne by a goal, and then lost to Carlton in the final round. In the Herald's Friday night tipping panel, there were many that were willing to back Melbourne to win, even though Collingwood had beaten the Fuchsias by two goals at Victoria Park in their only match this season. The second semi-final attracted a smaller crowd of 41,000 people. Perhaps Melbourne did not attract as many supporters as Richmond, or maybe some fans were put off by the huge crowd the week before, where many people had trouble seeing the play, trapped inside the crush. But the weather was also miserable, some said the worst for the season, with very strong winds gusting around the MCG, blowing dust, papers and rubbish all around the ground. However, those who were at the game were rewarded with a thrilling final. Collingwood were hampered by an outbreak of influenza during the rounds. Harold Cheswes was replaced by Norm McLeod, and Captain Sid Coventry also had the flu, but played given the importance of the game. Yet he could hardly move in the last quarter. All through the game, players had trouble picking up the flight of the ball as the wind made it drop early or blow it over their heads. The other odd part of the day was an extended half-time. Collingwood had its players out on schedule, but they were left to lie down in the middle of the ground and it wasn't until umpire McMurray went into the Melbourne rooms that the fuchsias reappeared on the ground. Melbourne's players must have left something behind during their extended break because it was Collingwood doing almost all of the scoring in the third quarter, creating a five-goal break at three-quarter time. One little act of consequence occurred at the very end of the quarter as Collingwood's Leonard Murphy kicked the ball just as the bell went. But some said the ball was in the air as the first dongs rang out across the ground, while others, possibly most of those in the members' stand, swore he kicked the ball well after the bell rang. In any case, the ball went through for a point, and then the umpire signalled all clear and time. After all, it was just one point, and Melbourne were five goals down. But in the last quarter, as the Magpies tired with the flu and injuries taking their toll, Melbourne attacked and struck again and again, while Collingwood tried to stem this fast-finishing tide. When Tommy McConville kicked his second goal, the scores were level. Minutes later, the bell rang out. The game was over, and both teams were on nine goals, eight behinds, 62 points. It was a draw. After all the noise and excitement, people had to stop and think. What did it all mean? And then, discussion about that point at the end of the third quarter began. But regardless about people's opinions, the game was done, the scores were level, and the VFL had its first draw in a final. These two teams would be back for the replay next week. Richmond would have to wait another week to see who they would be playing, and cricket lovers began to fret about the potential of the season going into October, and impacting preparations of the wicket for the much-anticipated Ashes series. The secretary of the Melbourne Cricket Club, Mr Hugh Trumbull, assured cricket lovers that all would be fine. So the players trained again. The newspapers did their previews again, Melbourne getting the nod as favourites from the Herald, and the spectators lined up again at the MCG. Some might have been trying to get in for free, like the group of young lads who entered the members' stand during the first semi-final. When challenged, they told the attendant that they were bricklayers working on the new stand, 
the attendant, who had done his share of building and laying bricks, noted that he'd never seen any brickies wearing patent leather shoes or dressed up like jazz sheiks. So the young gentlemen were directed to leave. Once the attendant moved towards the police constable, the lads took off, running out of the ground, moving faster than any bricky would. Trying to bluff your way into the MCG has a long history. On the topic of spectators, there were some embarrassed Carlton players at the second semi-final. After the tribunal decision earlier in the week, when Richmond's Alan Geddes had been suspended for eight weeks, but Carlton's Tommy Downs had been out of for 12, 20 of his teammates were so angry about the difference between the two penalties, they firmly decided, as a group, they would boycott the semi-final. So there was some confusion and discomfort when one group of 10 players bumped into the other 10 players at the MCG watching the game. Each was able to explain they had um, forgotten the boycott and all accepted the other's explanation. 42,000 people were at the MCG for the replay and they saw another exciting game on yet another windy day that blew the ball in odd directions. A dust storm blew through the MCG early in the second quarter and rain threatened at times. There may not have been the fine marking or accurate passing expected of top-tier teams because of these conditions, but there was fierce competition. The game was decided in a thrilling final quarter, with Collingwood gaining a five-goal lead and Melbourne scoring six goals for the quarter, almost getting in front of the Magpies, but losing by just four points when the bell rang. A commendable effort for a team playing a man short when they lost Jack Collins to a knee injury after quarter time, although Collingwood's Bruce Andrews injured his arm after half-time. Both Collins and Andrews hovered about in their respective forward lines, unable to contribute to their team's efforts. Collingwood, holding the right of challenge, would take on Richmond for the Premiership. The Magpies had to win just one game to be back-to-back Premiers. The Tigers would have to defeat Collingwood twice if they wanted the flag. Richmond had played in a practice game against their second 18 team on Saturday in an attempt to keep the players in form. Richmond were led by Donald Dom, given their regular captain Alan Geddes was suspended. Don had started with the Tigers as a rover in 1917 and played in three grand finals from 1919 to 1921, winning premierships in 20 and 21. At times he could be volatile and he was suspended for 20 weeks over his career, effectively missing an entire season. But the 20 weeks was just two suspensions. When Vic Thorpe retired after the 1925 season, Don moved to fullback, using his experience and judgment to become a feared defender. After his playing career, he wrote for the Sporting Globe for 12 years until 1941. Sid Coventry was captain in Collingwood in his second year as team leader. He had continued to impress. As noted by the Sporting Globe, he showed inspiring leadership, powerful ruck work, strong defence and indomitable courage. In August, he predicted that the team would be Premiers because they were 50% better than the 1927 Premiership team and they had the best coach in Australian football. Of course, it was Jock McHale who was coaching Collingwood in the 17th of his 38 seasons. He already had three Premierships, but there was plenty more to come. Obviously, I've been discussing Mikhail many times across the podcast, but this game would see some of his finest coaching prowess. On the Thursday night before the game, he gave his team a light training run. They had played some tough games, and there was no point wearing them out on the training track. He called the team meeting, where Richmond were thoroughly dissected. Collingwood would goad the overconfident Tigers to throw them off their mark. They would restrict Richmond's high-marking game. They would turn over the ruck players frequently to keep the players fresh and confuse their opponents. And McHale made it absolutely clear they would make the ball their objective. There was one further trick up McHale's sleeve, which we will discuss shortly. But suffice to say, the Magpies were confident they had a plan to bring the Tigers down. Richmond's coach was Frank Checker-Hughes. In his second year at the helm, he had the Tigers into back-to-back grand finals. He was looking to go better than runners-up this time, 
He was a World War I veteran who had played in Richmond's 1920 and 21 premierships, and he will become a coaching legend in his time, as we will see in future episodes. The umpire for the final was Jack McMurray Sr. He'd umpired all three semi-finals, and he would be officiating in his fifth and final grand final. He would continue umpiring up to 1936, becoming the first man to umpire 300 games. Along with the five grand finals, he would also look after 23 finals and 15 interstate games. And he also had a half game to his name when he shared umpiring duties with the VFA's James Lahaney in the somewhat controversial 1924 Premier's playoff between Essendon of the VFL and the VFA's Premier's Footscray. In their two games during the season, Richmond won at home by two points and Collingwood at their home ground by eight points, indicating two evenly matched teams. But Richmond were the favourites given their strong finish to the season, while Collingwood had been struggling to beat North, lost to Carlton, and could be considered lucky to have got past Melbourne. Their champion full forward, Gordon Coventry, had been out of form since round 17, only kicking four goals in four games, far below his usual form. But his brother Sid had a message. There will be no second chance. We are not underestimating Richmond, but consider we have passed our rough patch and have now worked to our top. Richmond had an almost full list to choose from, and Bert Foster, with his Wednesday league duties complete, the fire brigade lost the premiership to the railways, came in to replace the injured Robert O'Neill, and the suspended Alan Geddes was replaced by Fred Godding, playing only his ninth game. Collingwood also had changes to make to their team. Percy Rowe came back into the side after being off for a month with injuries. George Clayton was also back into the side, and the two unlucky players were Percy Bayer and Les Angus, who missed out. Bayer would become a regular with the Magpies in future seasons, but Les Angus would not play for the club again. He played nine games in 1928, but could not match the feats of his father, George Angus, who played in three premierships before handing the captain coach role over to Jock McHale. But Les's son would play 73 games for Hawthorne in the late 1960s and 70s, including the 1971 Premiership team, a three-generation VFL family with two winning premierships. While on family matters, the Magpies had three sets of brothers playing in the team, Sid and Gordon Coventry, who we've already discussed, the Colliers, Albert and Harry, who were in the early years of what would become famous careers at Collingwood, and they were also joined by Frank and Len Murphy, who would play 300 games between them, although not all at Collingwood. 50,000 people were at the ground for the final, down on the record-breaking semi-final earlier in the month, but well up on the rain-sodden 1927 grand final. The curtain raiser was between Royal Rovers and Burnley, playing the final of the Metropolitan Junior Association. These were under-18 teams being given the chance to play on the MCG, a preview of the more recent tradition of under-18s in the TAC Cup or NAB League playing on the MCG early on grand final day. Burnley won the game, 11 goals 6 to Carlton's Royal Rovers, 8 goals 15. Unlike the horrific conditions when Richmond and Collingwood met in 1927, the day was fine, the ground was firm, and there was little wind to interfere with the play. Collingwood were warming up before the start. Gordon Coventry had entered the game under a cloud of poor form. His brother and skipper, Sid, came across to him with a simple six-word message. A lot depends on you today. It's recorded in Collingwood's history that as they strode to their positions at the start of the game, Percy Rowe turned to Coventry and said, Nuts, if you don't break the record for goals kicked in the final today, I won't speak to you again. When Coventry replied that the Richmond defenders might have a thing to say about the matter, Rowe just growled, By the time I've finished with them, they'll be wondering what fell on them. The opening quarter saw a fast-moving game, where Collingwood seemed to have settled while the Tigers were showing nerves and making simple mistakes. Collingwood's Len Murphy scored the first goal with a long, driving kick, much to the delight of Magpie supporters. 
The reason for the inclusion of big man Percy Rowe into the Collingwood forward line was quickly becoming clear. In previous games, Richmond's fullback Donald Don had a good record against the dangerous full forward, one of the few defenders who could match it with the fast-moving Gordon Coventry. But Percy Rowe had a job to do. Clear a path for Coventry. We would call it blocking in the modern game, and umpires would be penalising Rowe. But Coventry was enjoying a free path to the ball and picked up his first goal. At quarter time, Collingwood led two goals four to Richmond's three behinds. The second quarter started well for the Magpies, but they missed gettable shots. Richmond then started to make their move with two quick goals getting them to within eight points of Collingwood. But then the game was with Collingwood and Rowe was breaking a path through defenders for Gordon Coventry. The champion full forward kicked four goals for the quarter. Richmond had played some good football, but Collingwood were sharper, cleaner with the ball, and using a superior plan. The half-time score saw Collingwood leading seven goals eight to four goals three. In modern times, media deals with the AFL mean that we often get interviews with coaches or players during breaks in the game. It was also done in 1928, when Richmond's captain, Donald Don, had a few words with the Sporting Globe at half-time. The style of game is not suiting us. Too many of our chaps are flying for the ball, allowing Collingwood to mark over them. But the game is not lost yet. We always finish well. Richmond gave their supporters a reason to cheer by kicking the first goal of the third quarter. But Collingwood responded quickly, and the gap in the scores was maintained. Richmond's Carl Watson was moving the ball beautifully on the wing, but there were not enough consistent performances from his teammates. Still, even at three-quarter time, the Tigers' supporters had hope. Collingwood led 9 goals 11 to Richmond on 7-7. But as Donald Don said, they always finish well. After a goal each way, Richmond's Ralph Ampey wasn't able to convert a strong attack, and things just seemed to fall away after that point for the Tigers. From the wing, Collingwood's Norm McLeod had a 50-yard dash, getting the ball to Gordon Coventry, who converted yet again. And the game was won. The Tigers had tried, but Collingwood were just too good, with a plan working as expected, and Gordon Coventry having the day out his brother asked for. Nine goals at full forward, a record for a grand final, not matched for another 60 years when Gary Ablett Sr. also kicked nine for Geelong in 1989. The final scores were Collingwood, 13 goals, 18, 96, to Richmond, 9 goals, 9, 63. A 33-point win to the Magpies, which could have been more with some straight kicking. Collingwood's rooms were crowded with well-wishers, including Melbourne's Brownlow medalist Ivor Warren-Smith and many former Collingwood champions, including Dick Lee, who must have been proud of his successor, Gordon Commentary. Richmond officials visited the room to give their congratulations. Jock McHale said he was the proudest man in the world. Sid Coventry gave a speech, singing the praises of Percy Rowe, saying, No one thought it possible for one man to shoulder such a burden, but Rowe thought lightly of it. It would be Rowe's last game, retiring after seven seasons, 96 games and a premiership. He would move into coaching roles at Fitzroy and Carlton in later years. Gordon Coventry was declared the best player, receiving a £1.01 prize donated by supporters, and club secretary George Connor presented him with an 1820 sovereign coin to mark the occasion. A year earlier, after the 1927 premiership, a group of supporters were claiming the Magpies could emulate Carlton's hat-trick achieved in 1906, 07 and 08. Now they had their seventh premiership and had gone back-to-back for the first time since 1902-03. Was the hat-trick under threat? So, what was the story of Gordon Coventry regaining his form in the most important game of the season? Clearly the tactic of having Percy Rowe block defenders helped, but Coventry had only kicked four goals in four games before the grand final. He was clearly out of sorts. The secret was revealed a decade later when the two brothers gave a rare interview with the Sporting Globe in 1938. Gordon Coventry had been belted in the head in an interstate game against Western Australia, held on the weekend between rounds 17 and 18. He had damaged a small bone in his ear that affected his balance. Gordon confessed that, quote, I could not move at times. 
I felt glued to the ground. Unquote. Sid had never heard this explanation and asked his brother why he hadn't mentioned it. Gordon pointed his finger at Sid and said, He'd have dropped me out of the side if I told him. A man at Collingwood those days had to be really crook before he reported a crack. While I was out there, they had to look after me. Bung ear or no bung ear. Clearly, not everyone of the 50,000 at the MCG were entranced by the game. Two plainclothes constables arrested a pair of men at the centre of an illegal two-up game behind one of the refreshment stands in the outer. The crowd disappeared, but the two men with the coins were arrested and locked up in the city watch house. And there was a sigh of relief at the Victorian Cricket Association. Collingwood had finished the season on the original schedule of 29th of September. The MCG servers could be top-dressed and the wicket prepared for the all-important Australia versus the rest on October 19, which could proceed as planned. In the post-season reviews, the Argus noted that the attendance at the league games was over 2 million people, with another 326,000 at VFA games. Clear evidence of the overwhelming popularity of the game of football in Melbourne. In the weeks after the Premiership, Collingwood players celebrated with smoke nights and a gala night at the Collingwood Town Hall and being hosted at various theatres. Collingwood's Premiership wigman, Bruce Andrew, had a narrow escape from tragedy in October when enjoying some post-season celebrations. Having been plucked from the Collingwood District team mid-season when Jock McHale asked seconds coach Hugh Thomas for his fastest player, the selection was so sudden he had to get his mum to sew on the number 27 on the back of the jumper given to him on Friday night. Nine games later, he was a Premiership player. But at a team picnic in Mornington in late October, he went swimming and dived too deep, striking his head against the sea bottom. He would spend 12 weeks in hospital and require a neck brace when released from hospital, but he was able to return to the team in the following season. Early November saw rumours being reported that North Melbourne, Geelong and Hawthorne were to be outed from the VFL and VFA club Coburg be taken in, the complaint being a lack of money from the three clubs targeted. It didn't happen, but it shows that the composition of the league was not always as stable as we might think. In December, Parant Council even made an application for Parant to join the VFL, but this was quickly declined. As December closed, there were the usual rumours circulating of which players were going to switch teams, who might be appointed as coach, and the aftermath of several club annual general meetings, where reform groups had once again appealed to their member base to let them lead their club back to success. So we'll leave season 1928 there. Collingwood were back-to-back premiers, Richmond back-to-back runners-up, and 10 other clubs were looking to replace them in next season's grand final. Join me next time to see how season 1929 unfolds, a year where football will not be the only thing on people's minds. If you've enjoyed grand final history, please leave a review where you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or you want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.au or check out grandfinalhistory.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History. Music